you, Dylan and Morgan, and thank you, Johnny and Leah. Good morning, World of Life, as I come to you on this uh, Good Friday morning. This is obviously not the warehouse. In the middle of our recording process, the lockdown went to DEFCON 4, which meant that we weren't able to um, get out except for absolutely essential reasons, and so couldn't finish the recording. But that's no matter. As Paul said when he was in prison, the Word of God cannot be chained. And so I'm going to be coming to you today with the Word from my home, and thank you for allowing me to come into your home. We're going to read in a moment from Matthew chapter 27 and from verse 45, a number of verses. So why don't you grab your Bibles and get ready with me to read that. It says in verse 45, At noon, darkness fell across the entire land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In verse 50, then Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. In verse 54, it says, The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. And they said, This man truly was the Son of God. As evening approached, in verse 57, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved from the rock. And then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. You know, friends, I think there's something particularly fitting about the fact that Easter comes in the middle of this global crisis, possibly the most significant global crisis we will have experienced in our lifetime, or maybe will experience. As good as we look at the frailty of the world around us, we're reminded of the fact that God doesn't sit detached from the fallen world that we live in, but He actually entered into the world. That He came not as a conquering king, but as we read in this passage here, as a suffering servant sent to die for those that he would save. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the most central part of the Christian faith. The world that we live in is full of suffering and death. It just seems like it's more near to us at this time, perhaps than ever before. And it's important in these moments to be reminded that Jesus knows what it means to suffer. He knows what suffering is. The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus was pierced, that he was crushed, that he was afflicted, and that he was led to the slaughter. Here's the thing, though. The suffering of Christ and the suffering of Christians in the kingdom of God is always purposeful. It's never wasted. Isaiah goes on to say that he was pierced, but for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was led to the slaughter like a lamb because he was the sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. And so even as we um, come to remember the death of Jesus Christ today, we also get to remember his overwhelming victory, a victory that we as believers can stand in even in times of suffering. We can say with Paul, as he declared in 1 Corinthians 15, where O death is your victory, where O death is your sting. But this moment of time is not defined only by the coronavirus and by the, the threat to normal life, whatever that means, as people speak continually about the new normal. The truth 
is that the world has been on a dangerous course for many decades now. Nations that once predominantly worshipped the God of the Bible that um, built their culture and their laws and their practices around the words of Scripture have turned their backs on God. Many of these nations are now called post-church. In too many nations in the West and in the East, God has been expelled from the public square or not acknowledged at all. In the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the worship of our own creations. And we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And the fruit of this blind and willful rebellion is seen all around us in the rampant sexual immorality, greed, oppression and violence. In many ways, we're in a worse place on this earth than we've ever been before, as billions are literally hurtling towards a godless eternity. And so we have to wonder if God isn't actually able to use this time of shaking to remind people of the things that are of first importance. It may not seem like the kingdom is advancing now. We can't even gather for church. We scattered all over the place. And um, so many of my trips that were planned to go and preach the gospel in the nations have been cancelled. And yet, things are not always what they seem. It's sobering for us Christians to realize that though we understand Jesus' death to have cosmic implications that, that make any pandemic, never mind this one, pale in comparison, it's hardly even recorded in secular literature. But that's not that surprising. An associate professor of archaeology called Lawrence Mitziak said this, Peasants don't normally leave an archaeological trail. Jesus was a nobody, the suspected bastard child of a nobody, born in the humblest of settings, a barn, not even a house, in an obscure town. He lived most of his life as a rural carpenter, accomplishing nothing of real worth. And even when he began to teach, he only traveled within a several days of his own hometown and never left his own home nation. He wrote no books, he oversaw no great projects, he left behind no buildings. And at the end of his life, he was convicted by what was regarded as a backwater religious sect and was crucified or executed like a common criminal. He died from a combination of his injuries and suffocation outside an inconsequential city, or so it seemed. All of those statements are true. And yet, even the soldiers that crucified Jesus realized that something astonishing was happening on that day. And perhaps by divine revelation at that moment, they declared this man truly was the Son of God. This nobody was God incarnate, was the Son made flesh, born of a virgin to be the Savior and to save a lost and fallen world. He was, he was born at exactly the right time, in exactly the right place, as God had chosen centuries before and prophesied through his um, prophets. He was prepared in secret for a ministry though, that though would remain local to the people of God. This nation of, uh, of Israel was, um, was unparalleled in its um, radical um, departure from the status quo and the supernatural acts that marked it. As Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And this Jesus, this God 
incarnate, allowed himself to be executed between two criminals in a manner that was prohibitively humiliating and barbaric. After being betrayed by those he loved, tortured by those he created and rejected by those he had came to save, his slain body was laying in a tomb. And his disciples went into hiding. They were hopeless because everything they had come to believe in and depend upon was wrecked in the death of Jesus. And as these infections are rising around the world, we are facing the most bizarre and peculiar situation where countries are calling their citizens to go into hiding. Like the limp, lifeless body of Jesus hidden in the dark of the tomb, all humanity has been locked away. The things we've come to rely upon are faltering. Entertainment, a consumer-driven economy, fame, and even scientific advances that seem to promise heaven on earth. And many people in the world today are feeling waves of hopelessness come upon them, waves of fear in terms of what they're facing. How hopeless the disciples must have felt at the moment that Jesus lay in that tomb. Their leader and their savior was dead. They'd seen him die and watched him laid in the tomb. It was over. And for three days from Friday afternoon through until Sunday morning, it must have felt like every hope and every dream and everything that seemed normal was done. What they couldn't see yet was that the world had been irreversibly changed the day Jesus died. Matthew records, as we read, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple was shaken. The religious system that the Jewish people had come to rely upon was shaken and was tumbling down. It says the rocks were split. Foundations are built on rocks. Well, good foundations anyway. Things that are secure and stable and that can be relied upon. But when the rocks split, even those things come tumbling down as well. Nothing would ever be the same again. Even though for most of the people on earth, it felt like it was the same old thing and nothing was ever changing. And many people perhaps feel like that even today. I was reading in Ezekiel chapter 12 in my devotions this week. And uh, in verse 22, it reads like this. Son of man. You've heard that proverb they quote in Israel, time passes and prophecies come to nothing. Kind of can recognize that, eh? Like nothing's changing. It's the same old, same old. It'll it'll be the same. We don't need God. We'll figure our way out of this thing. But verse 23, Ezekiel is instructed to tell the people that the sovereign Lord has said this to them. I will put an end to this proverb and you will soon stop quoting it. Now give them this new proverb to replace the old one. The time has come for every prophecy to be fulfilled. The time has come. The time has come. It reminds me of Galatians 4 verse 4, which says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The world was not the same after Easter. That's what we remember today. And while the disciples were filled with despair because of the death of Jesus, the very thing that caused their hope to rush away like the tide pulling back was actually God's agency of rescue. One of the things we've seen is that everything has a human or secular point of view and a divine point of view. And often those two things are poles apart. The disciples' hopelessness was natural. But in his death, Jesus had accomplished the great substitution. He had defeated death and displayed the glorious grace of his Father for all the world to see, if only the world would open its eyes to see it. 
from a human point of view, point of view, Golgotha was a scene of the ultimate injustice. And I don't think anybody would contend against that. While not everybody acknowledges Jesus as God, it's almost universally accepted that Jesus was a good man, a wise teacher, and in some ways otherworldly. God, Gandhi, called Jesus one of the greatest teachers of mankind. Napoleon said this about him, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Even the Quran declares Jesus to have been a miracle working prophet. This Jesus was worthy of adoration, not execution. The testimony of scripture goes further and says that Jesus was the only person that never sinned in word or in deed and that he was completely righteous before the Father and innocent. And yet he was murdered by hypocritical, greedy religious leaders who stirred up a mob and collaborated with ambitious and fearful politicians. From a human point of view, ultimate injustice and final defeat took place at Golgotha. R.C. Sproul Jr., when asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people, said this, that only happened once. But Golgotha was also the site of flawless, perfect justice. That quote from R.C. Sproul goes on and says, that only happened once and he volunteered. This was the plan of God. One of the synonyms for perfect or flawless is seamless. And as I was reading through John's account of the crucifixion this week, I was struck by the description of the, the, the robe of Jesus that the, um, the, the Roman soldiers gambled for. It said it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. That jumped out at me. The work of God is seamless. The plan of God is seamless. The justice of God is seamless, flawless, and perfect. It wasn't mob rule that crucified Christ. It wasn't conspiracy of, the, of the, the religious and the politicians. Actually, it was God's perfect, flawless, seamless rescue plan being worked out to accomplish his perfect purpose. Friends, that was our redemption. You see, we are subject to isolation from God because of our sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, It's your sins that have cut you off from God. And it's all of us. There's none of us that are not infected by this disease of sin. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And the mortality rate is 100%. Romans again in chapter 6 and verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Golgotha was high noon for sin. The moment of reckoning had come. Every sin that you've ever committed and that I've ever committed and that anybody would ever be committed was laid bare. It was measured and it was fitted to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Each was weighed in the court of divine judgment. Each sin without regard for standing or the status of the person, the man or the woman that had committed that sin. And the punishment that each sin warranted was inflicted upon the body and the soul of this God-man, Jesus, until the just wrath of God was fully spent. Friends, God's seamless plan has always been to redeem a people that would be His, the objects of His divine grace and the children of His household. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 
says God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. How does he do that? Well, number one, the most important thing is that we need to remember that it wasn't just Jesus that died on the cross that day. Everything is not always as it seems. All of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, who have come to him with belief and with repentance, are, uh, were crucified with him on that cross. The gods that believed in Jesus that day would come to faith and came to faith in Christ were crucified with him. Saul, who murdered Christians but came to faith, was crucified with him. Every sinner who comes to Christ in faith and repentance, receiving Jesus as their Savior and their King, were crucified with them. Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 3 and 4, Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, in other words, in our salvation, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ. Wonderfully, Paul continues in verse 4 and says, And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we also we will also be raised to life as he was. In a matter of days, the disciples awoke as if from a nightmare to find that the world would never be the same again. And these lessons are key for us. Earthly realities will never have the final word. The world will never be hopeless again. Death would never be the victorious enemy. And history really is his story. In just a few days, we will celebrate the resurrection of Christ when he walked out of the tombs. As we sit in our homes, hidden away as it were for a season, we need to know that we share in that resurrection life. And so we remain full of faith, full of hope and full of love. Knowing that if the grave could not keep Jesus trapped, then God's plan and purpose for my life and for your life will, will be fulfilled and cannot be constrained by anything that's going on around us right now. You know what this means, friends? It means that we get to live free of fear. It means that we get to live free of any obligation to the ways of the world. It means that we get to live full of faith and in the resurrection power that the world needs to see from us right now as we live sacrificial, incarnational lives, full of hope, full of faith, and full of love. There's a wonderful hymn written called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I just love the words of that. And uh, I'm going to read those to you now and ask you just to maybe close your eyes as I read these words over you and allow them to, um, to permeate into your very soul. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My riches gain account but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, 
Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Won't you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you today so acutely aware of the significance of the crucifixion of Christ. So grateful that when he died upon the cross, he went as a, as a sacrifice in my place. That my sin was put upon Christ, that him who knew no sin became sin. And the penalty that my sin deserved was borne by Christ so that I would not have to bear that penalty in eternity. And so that as I come to you in faith today, believing that Jesus is your son, believing that he lived a perfect sinless life and died on the cross in my place, believing that he was raised from the dead by your power, that I am forgiven of my sin, that my conscience is cleansed, and that I can jump and shout today in the freedom that I now have. But much more than that, Lord, through forgiveness, we have been reconciled to you, Heavenly Father. And we have been adopted into your family so that today we are your sons and your daughters. We are so grateful, Lord God, for all that you have done for us. And today, of all days, we celebrate the fact that we are the freest, that we are the most loved, that we are um, the most powerful in the resurrection life of Christ, um, of all men and women on the face of the earth today. And no matter what comes our way, we know that this world is your world. And the story that's being written, Lord, is your story. We trust you. We put our faith in you. And Lord, we are extraordinarily grateful today for what you've done for us. Amen. We're going to break bread now. And so... Uh, if you don't mind getting the elements ready that you have with you. Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and he said to disciples, this is my body which is given for you. And it says that he broke the bread and he gave a piece to each of the disciples. There's so many wonderful things in that picture. We're reminded, of course, that this is one loaf. And as we come to Christ and we share in that body, we have been joined together as well. And so though we are scattered in my home, in your home, your apartment, wherever you are right now, even in other nations, we're reminded that we are one body. And I want to remind you today, will of life, that you belong to me and I belong to you as we belong to each other. But Hebrews chapter 10 just says it so wonderfully in light of what we've already gone through this morning. It says, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifices of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. And so friends, I want you to take this bread now. This is the body of Jesus given for you. We do this in remembrance of him. Then the Bible says that Jesus took the cup and he said that this is the cup of the new covenant in his blood. It's a wonderful thing to be in a covenant with God. Covenant means that what's his is mine and what's mine is his. And so all of God's strength and all of his resources become our resources and all of our weakness and all of our debt and all of our whatever God takes upon himself. That is a wonderful exchange. But Hebrews 10 again, verse 19 to 20 speaks into what we've been talking about this morning. 
It says, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Remember we read from Matthew 27 that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That means that we can come freely now into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now we drink together from this cup. This is the, the cup of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Drink it now in remembrance of him. God bless you, friends, as we reflect on what Christ has done for us on this sober day, I suppose. And we also celebrate because we recognize that um, this, uh, this death of Christ only opened the door for the resurrection of Christ. And as we read today, we get to share in that resurrection life. And we hope that you will join us on Sunday morning as we gather together for worship and as we sit under his word again and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Some of you are going to gather together in your Friday cell groups now for a Zoom chat and catch up with each other and pray for each other. I trust wherever you are that you are healthy and you are strong. We've said it before and I want to say it again. Don't go through this alone. If you're needing help, reach out. If you just need a conversation, reach out to somebody in your group or one of the elders and uh, we'll be more than happy to pray for you. Don't forget to go to um, wellhome.com as well and you can check out the tabs there. There are so many resources and links that will help you stay connected. We really do love you guys. We pray that God would bless you, that the Holy Spirit would be near to you, and that Jesus would be a comfort and strength to you. God bless.